0: All right, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, First of all, good morning. Welcome to the exchange. I'm so glad you guys are here. Hey, if you're in middle school, you can go. You are dismissed. Um, Just say welcome. So glad you're here. My name is Josiah. If I have not met you yet, I would love to meet you after. Um, I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving week. If um, you hear me out of breath, I'm still trying to work off the food. So I'm kind (laughs) of serious. I don't know if you can kind of hear that. Um, but I hope you had a great Thanksgiving Day. Hey, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But Titus chapter 3 is where we'll be at today. Um, also, you could turn to John 3 and Ezekiel 36. If you're a Bible student, just love to flip in advance. Um, there will be a lot of Bible today. A Lots. And that's a good thing, but I hope that doesn't also distract and take away from the same time because I don't want to overwhelm you with scripture, but there's a lot of scripture. So before we get into anything, before we do anything else, let me just kind of make one announcement. I made this last week, but hey, we're trying to actually open up a classroom for three months to 18 months, and so that means we do need a couple volunteers and kids. We might shift things around. We, we just need some more help in the kids' ministry, so if that does interest you, uh, you can go to our website, theexchangechurchcc slash serve. Click on that. We'll have someone get a hold of you. We'll interview you. We'll background check you. We'll let you shadow someone for a couple of weeks, but we could really use help with the kids' ministry in that in that way, I uh, just want to make you aware. But Titus chapter three. So last week we started our series, our short little series on the Holy Spirit. We're just calling this "Receive the Spirit." Um, if you've been with us, the, really the whole year, we, we've taken to study of the Gospel of Mark. We went through the Gospel of Mark from January through November up until two weeks ago, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he claimed. Uh, we talked about the cross and the resurrection. And here's why we're doing this little series. Here we are, two thousand years later. Jesus died and rose again, and our question is like, now what? All right. So we know Jesus died. We know he rose again. But it's two thousand years later. How do we know God? How do we walk with God? How do we make God known? And really, the answer is through the Holy Spirit. And so we want to know that the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. What does He do? What is He like? How do we stop viewing Him as a force and more as a person to know? And so last week, if you're with us, uh, we talked specifically about who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? That was last week. So we talked about who is he? We know that he has personality traits. We know that he is God. We talked about the person of the Holy Spirit in that way. We talked about what he does, which is very hard to do. By no means in this short series, by the way, will this be an exhaustive study on the Holy Spirit? How do you, in six weeks, talk about the infinite God? There's no way we're going to fully understand him after six weeks. We want to ongoingly talk about the Holy Spirit, but what does he do? We talked about how he testifies of Jesus, how Jesus said when he comes, Jesus said he will glorify me. And so we looked at how primarily the Spirit is pointing people to Jesus, saying, man, you need Jesus. You are built for Jesus. You are built for something more than this world, and the answer is found in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is constantly working our hearts in that way and pointing us to Jesus and bringing us to Jesus. And really, here's my prayer. My prayer is that we don't just go through this little series and be like, oh, that's an okay series or cool series. I hope that this is so much more than a teaching series. My prayer is that this would shape us and form us, that as a church, we'd be, we'd be a church that desperately relies and seeks the Holy Spirit, that we'd not try to do church, that we'd not try to do life, that we'd not try to do ministry without the Holy Spirit. God never intended us to, to follow him without the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says, it's good that I'm leaving because when I do leave, it's to your advantage that I go because when I go, I will send you the Spirit. And so I really do hope that this is so much more than just a series for us. I hope we are people that seek the power and the presence of God in our lives, that we get to know the person, the Holy Spirit. So please don't like hear this series and just kind of go, okay, I got some information. If all we do is grow in our knowledge, but don't miss, don't experience the person, the spirit, we, we've kind of missed the point. And so let me just kind of catch up to speed. So this is our, this is our second week in the series. Last week, as I mentioned, we did the Holy Spirit personal work. We'll kind of throw up like the next few weeks. This week we're doing the Holy Spirit and salvation the Holy Spirit and salvation. Okay, what role does the Holy Spirit play in the work of salvation? What is salvation? Next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in day-to-day life. So, okay, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, dwells in me. We'll talk about that today. So what does it look like to walk with the Spirit? How do you know the Spirit's in you? How do you even know that? We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, Then we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in power, not just that he's in you. But the Bible says he'll come upon you, and you can be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, and then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and evangelism. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to be a witness for Jesus in this world. And then the last week will be the 23rd, and we're just going to look at the Holy Spirit and Christmas and his work and involvement before Christmas. So, um, and the person in the story of Jesus, God incarnate, we'll look at that story in that way. So, uh, that's kind of how we're going to walk through this. And maybe you're here and you go, man, the Holy Spirit and salvation, the Holy Spirit and salvation, just so I'm saved. Why are we going to talk about this? Like, I know, I I get this. I know this. I I, want to suggest that we maybe fully don't understand the beauty of salvation. I don't. I think the more I study what God has done and is doing and will do amazes me. I think we don't understand how complex it is and how simple it is. And so my hope is we can understand that God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all play a role in salvation. And so what's the Holy Spirit's role in salvation? And what does that look like? And how does he make us new? And what specifically does he do? So we're going to read from Titus chapter 3, verse 3, um, and then we'll pray and look at specifically the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. And again, this can't even be exhaustive. That's why there's so much Bible today, because there's just so much to talk about when it comes to the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. So Titus chapter 3, verse 3, let's read that. It says this. For we ourselves were also once foolish foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Paul starts off pretty strong. Um, Everyone say, that's me. That's me. Verse 4. But, and listen to this. I love, there's some great buts in the Bible. (laughs) This is one of them. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Part of me just wants to say amen and let's, let's go home, right? Like this is so profound. By no means am I going to even be able to, to do justice, I feel like, to just to Titus chapter three here. But we do want to look at specifically how God has, he says here, how God regenerated us through the washing, through the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, I just do ask that um, in this time we could hear from you, that you would do something, God, that's not explained that that we don't get. I, I don't understand, God. The day I, I feel like I heard the gospel for the first time, even though it's the 10,000th time, I, I, I don't get how one day my heart said, yes, I'm all in. Other than the fact that your spirit, God was wooing me and bringing me to you, Jesus, and pursuing me. And God, I ask that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our ears, help us understand who you are, what you're doing. God, for in this room, I know that we can be frustrated. Maybe. maybe people here are mad at you. They're upset with you, God. Lord, I just ask that you would just um, let them see you in a new light today. Let them see, God, that while we were at our worst, you lovingly pursued us and gave everything for us. And that, God, you sent your spirit to do something that only, only you can do. So we thank you, God, and we just ask that you'd be here in your wonderful name. Amen. In John chapter 20, uh, there's a really interesting event or story that took place, all right? In John 20, Jesus just rose again. He's with his disciples and he says this to them. Listen, we'll, we'll put the verse up here. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. All right, what's that? Uh, receive the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where we kind of got our teaching series title from. But like, what is that? Maybe you're like, I've never heard that story. Jesus grabs the disciples, breathes on them, Just imagine what that looked like. He breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit, they received the Holy Spirit, right? Let me kind of explain what what this is. Like, what is this? If you remember last week, last week we talked about specifically how the Holy Spirit is with us. John 14, Jesus talks about how his Holy Spirit is with disciples. He's with Christians, with followers of Jesus. He's also with the world, convicting them of sin, saying, believe in Jesus. Look to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's with us. He's with us. Here's what's interesting. In John 14, 17, Jesus said this. He says, you know him, the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He will be in you. Please hear this. In John chapter 20, when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwelt in them. He died. He rose again. He ushered in the new covenant. And now he says, hey, receive the Holy Spirit. But here's what's really interesting, and please don't miss this. After this event took place in Luke 24, Jesus tells them to wait for the Spirit from on high. And this is why it's so interesting. He's like, the Spirit's with you. He'll be in you. John 20, they receive the Holy Spirit. But he goes, but now wait for him to come upon you. Wait for this power from on high. It's Luke 24. We'll throw the verse up here. Jesus says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. I'm sending the promise of the Father. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Wait till you have the power from on high. So here's what's interesting, and don't miss this, in case you're new, or in case maybe you've never heard this before, the Holy Spirit is with us. When you believe on Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, he dwells in you, and then Jesus talks about this relationship with the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you, this power from on high, and we're going to talk about that, the idea of him coming upon us or being filled with the Spirit in a couple of weeks, specifically today I want to talk about how the Spirit dwells in us, all right, the Spirit dwells in us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the presence of God dwells in us. And maybe you're like, no way. Maybe we take this for granted. Maybe we've heard this before. But there's a few verses I want to throw out to you really quick, how the Spirit of God dwells in us. It's First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Listen to this verse. It says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. He goes, do you not know that the spirit of God dwells in you? I, I really want, I want us to grasp this today, guys. The Bible refers to my body and your body as the temple for the Holy Spirit. That God's spirit lives and dwells in us. And understand this. Um when Moses led the people of Israel across the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he, they, he begins to build this tent for God, this dwelling place for God, and eventually Solomon will take this tent, and he would build a temple. That'd be the first temple being built, Solomon's temple, first temple, and the, pr- the purpose of the tent and the temple was what? Where God's presence could dwell in the Holy of Holies and meet with the people, and the, God's presence was near. God's presence was in the temple. Paul comes along the scene, and this is what's actually really interesting. We see it in the temple, in the tent. We see Jesus, the embodiment of Jesus. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. We beheld the glory of God, that Jesus is the embodiment of God. Jesus is God. And we saw God's presence come to us. And now we're told that God's presence doesn't just come to us, but dwells in us. And I do want us to understand this. I don't, I don't know if we fully get this. I don't know if I fully get this. You know that God's spirit, if you believe in Jesus, God's spirit dwells in you. It's interesting, actually, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 3, Paul uses this word specifically in Greek, it's naos. He uses this word to kind of say he's not just in the the temple, like the holy place. It's literally the word for holy of holies. He says your body is the holy of holies. That's what he's saying. This is where God dwells in you. God dwells in you. And I struggle with this thought because what would it look like if God really dwelt in me? What would it look like if God dwells in you? Like, well, I'd be a loving person, yeah? Well, I'd look like, yeah, it's like we're gonna talk about that more next week, but we understand God dwells, in, God dwells in us. And maybe you feel like, no, Josiah, maybe God dwells in the apostles, maybe he dwells in you or someone else here, but he doesn't dwell in me. If you believe in Jesus, your body is now the temple of the spirit where God dwells in you. And this promise is to everyone. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks this powerful sermon. If you remember, 3,000 people get saved. And here's what it says, and I, I want you see, to see the significance of this. This is so important. Acts two thirty-eight, it says this. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Listen, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's to all who are far, are far off. This was not just given to the apostles or their kids. He's saying this is for you, your children, and, and everyone else is far off. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift. Not earned, but he's given as a gift. And I want us to see this. That the Spirit of God dwells in us now. And so let's, let's talk through this, because this might be confusing. What role does the Holy Spirit play in salvation? So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit... Save us. Does he save us? What does that look like? What does salvation even mean? Let me just really quickly, as best as I can, explain salvation. All right, because sometimes when someone says the word salvation, you think, oh, that means you've been saved. That's part of it. It's part of it. Let me, under, let me explain something. Salvation has many components to it. Here, here's what I mean by that the Bible teaches that we've been saved, we're being saved, and one day we will be saved. And that's all under the umbrella of salvation that God's Spirit has saved us, God's Spirit is saving us, and God's Spirit will one day save us. So let me put it this way. Salvation has happened. It's happening, and it will happen. That you have been redeemed, you're currently being redeemed, and one day you will be redeemed. Is this making sense? When the Bible speaks of salvation, it's, it's in all those tenses. Like, God did it. It's done. It's finished. But you're also being saved. You're being saved from the power of sin. You're being saved from yourself. And then it talks about how one day you will be saved how one day you will be fully redeemed. Another way I'll put this up here because I think this is so important. Salvation really has kind of these three components, justification, sanctification, glorification. Please hear this because the Holy Spirit plays a role in all of these parts. Please hear this. Justification is you've been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, what do we deserve? Death. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is you're being saved from the power of sin. You're being saved for the power of sin. The Bible talks about people can be slaves to sin, that they're ruled by it. The Bible says you're no longer slave to sin. You don't have to be ruled by it any longer. Not just are you saved from the penalty of sin, and please hear this church, you're not just saved from the penalty of sin, but the Holy Spirit's saving us from the power of sin. And then one day, glorification is you'll be saved from the presence of sin. Meaning we won't see sin. We won't see sickness, disease, death, murder, rape. We won't see these terrible things. We'll see God ultimately usher in his kingdom and his glory. And so we see the salvation. When someone's like, oh, salvation, that just means you've been saved. It means so much more than that. It means I've been saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. Isn't that good news? Let me tell you the Holy Spirit plays a role in all of those aspects. Today, specifically, we're going to look maybe more at the first one, maybe a little bit of the last one. Next week, we're going to talk about sanctification. But I want you to see the Holy Spirit, what role does the Holy Spirit play? So if you would, we're going to walk through some verses. And I I just want to, there's so many thoughts as I studied and prayed. It's like, there's so many thoughts, but there's a few main themes we see within the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. I just want to point out to you guys, and don't miss this, don't get lost. Here's the first thing. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit regenerates us. I'll explain that word. We don't say that word a lot. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, the Holy Spirit adopts us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. All right? The Holy Spirit regenerates us, adopts us, us, seals us. Like, what does that even mean? This is so weird. I know. We'll explain it. All right. So let's look at the first one the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, listen, he regenerates you. What does that mean? Let's read Titus chapter 3, verse 3, one more time. All right, Titus 3, 3. What does it say? It says, for we ourselves, and please listen, this is me, for Josiah was also once foolish, and so on, disobedient, <laughs> deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by grace, by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The focus is in verse five and six, and please don't miss this again. In verse 5, he says, according to his mercy, saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly. All right. So what is regeneration? Because what is this? We got to talk about this. This is a doctrine, I think, that's not talked about a lot. It should be talked about more. It seems like, again, all these doctrines have big words, but usually simple meanings. So what is regeneration? Why is this important? Let me just share one thing with you. Um, A great guy who wrote a big book on the Holy Spirit, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this. He said, listen, He says, there can be no question at all, but that from our standpoint in this doctrine, together with the doctrine of atonement, is incomparably the most important doctrine of all, and there is, in a sense, in which we simply cannot understand Christian doctrine and Christian truth without being clear about the doctrine of regeneration. He's saying this doctrine is so important, we can't really move on unless we understand this. So what is regeneration? If you would just write this down, the idea of regeneration regeneration literally means regenesis. 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 What does that mean? It means new genesis. What does that mean? Genesis means beginning, right? Genesis chapter one verse one. In the beginning, God. Genesis. Regenesis. New beginning. There's this idea that Paul is saying God has made you completely new. You have a new beginning, a completely new beginning. Another way we could talk about that or look at that is he's saying um, this is a beginning that it's like completely fresh. So I want you to kind of grasp this for a second. I want to understand that God has made you guys, made myself completely new. That we are born once, but God, the Bible talks about how we are born twice, made completely new. This word regeneration is only used two times in the whole New Testament. It's used once in G- by Jesus in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said this: "Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, and let's hear this." Jesus says there will be a new generation, basically a new kingdom, a new time on earth, where all of the sin and perversion, all of the injustice is made right. Jesus was talking about a coming day where all the evil and pain and suffering that we see, he goes, no, there will be a new generation, a new creation when I come. And the word is really, it's so profound. It's the only time it's used elsewhere in the whole Bible, this word. It's basically saying there's gonna be something completely new that God does on earth, where when the king comes back, everything will be made right. And then here, Paul has the audacity to use this word towards us and saying, you've already been made new. You're already made new. You're new people for a new work. You're new people for a new generation. You're new people for a new creation. God's already made you new. He's already washed. He's already poured out his Holy Spirit abundantly on you, where now you are that new creation ready for the new creation. And he's saying, God has made you new in this way. And this is something that happens instantaneously. We were, once, we were once not made new, then instantaneously made new. This happens immediately. This is something that is done to us and not by us. If you notice in Titus 3, verse 4 and 5, he says, no, not, not according to your righteousness, but by his mercy. God, God did this within you. God made you new. Uh, this guy named Arthur Pink said it this way. He says, in regeneration, one of God's elect is the subject. He says, and the spirit of God is the sole agent. The subject of the new birth is wholly passive. He does not act, but is acted upon. Just God does this. This is something that Jesus said to Nicodemus in in John chapter 3. If you guys remember that conversation that Jesus is having at night with this guy named Nicodemus, he's talking about about being a part of God's kingdom. If you want, you can turn there, John 3, John chapter 3, but I want you to read and hear this conversation because it's so profound. All right, John chapter 3, verse 3. I know you've heard this, but let's re-hear this as if it's brand new to us. John 3, verse 3. We'll throw it up here. You can read it with us. John 3, verse 3. Nicodemus meets with Jesus and goes, Jesus, I know you're a great teacher. I have some questions for you. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born uh, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus saying, you've been born once naturally, but now you're going to be born again supernaturally by the Spirit of God. You've been born of water, now be born of the Spirit. And he's basically saying this happened. You can't, you can't tell where the wind comes from or where it goes. This ha- you must be born again. Now, here's what's interesting. I want you to think about this. When you and I were born, and we can talk to all the moms for a second, um, we didn't play a role in our birth, right? I know all the moms kind of probably wish that. Like, I wish my son or daughter, like, help get out. Um, we didn't play a role. <laughs> the, the idea is that the parent gave birth. It was done to us. Jesus is describing salvation this way. And here's what's interesting. He doesn't get it. He goes, how can this be? And Jesus goes, you're the teacher to all of Israel. This guy Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, a respected guy, wealthy guy, knew the law front and back. And he goes, how do you not know this? And Jesus is making many references to Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Jesus is saying, having a new heart, new life, born of the Spirit. He's using terms that would take your mind back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. So what is Ezekiel 36 and 37? I want to, if you please turn there, actually. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 36 and read this for yourself. Ezekiel 36, turn there. Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at verse 24, all right? Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Verse 24, it says, for I will take you. God says, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then, listen, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of you, out of your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jesus is referring to Nicodemus saying, think about the wind, think about the spirit. It just happens. God in Ezekiel 36 says, I will do this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will remove your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will give you new spirit. You can't do it. I will do this for you. God's saying, look what I'm going to do for you. And this is so freeing. God's like, I'm going to be the one that does this. I'm going I'm to make sure that you understand the spirit is given not earned. And I think a lot of us in the church need to hear that. The Holy Spirit is given, not earned. You cannot earn the Holy Spirit. You cannot work for the Holy Spirit. Just, just like you can't work for your salvation, you're saved by grace through faith. You cannot work for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given. He's not earned. God's like, I'm going to remove the idols from your life. I'm going to remove the strongholds from your life. Listen, you try to do these things outwardly, and here's where we get into trouble, church, and here's why I want us to hear this. We try to do things outwardly, be right with God, but God's like, let me do something internally in you let me remove them. Let me, me give you a new heart. Let me give you a new start, a new life. God's like, I'm going to do this within you. And now here's what gets really interesting. There's no chapters and verses, right? It's just like one continual thing. In Ezekiel chapter 37, with the same thought, maybe you remember this story. In Ezekiel 37, right after this story, God brings Ezekiel to this desert place, and there's bones everywhere. Maybe you remember the story. There's just dry bones, bleached in the sun, bones everywhere. And God's like, hey, Ezekiel, do you think I can make these bones come alive? And he's like, uh, only you would know God. And good answer. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> only, only you would know God. I don't know that. I don't know. He goes, okay, well, I want you to do something. I want you to speak to the bones. I want you to prophesy over them. I want you to breathe over them. And so if you guys remember to read this story in Ezekiel 37, you can turn a page over. Ezekiel literally speaks to the bones. He prophesies over the bones. And right before his eyes, he's seen these dry bones come to life. He's seen them put on flesh and cartilage. He's seen them being built together. And here's all these valley of bones. Now they're just people, but they're lifeless. They're just there, but they're still dead. They look alive, but there's no life. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 10, here's what it says. So he says, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 12, therefore God said, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you. I want you to hear this. He's like, look at these dead bones, speak over them speak over them, prophesy to them, and breathe upon them. And he's like, I breathe over these bones, and they came alive. And it's, very it's a play on words. The word for breath and spirit is the same word in Hebrew. It's ruach. It's this word that means breath or spirit. And He's like, speak, breath. Have your breath go over them. Have your spirit. God, your spirit's going to go over them. Your very breath, your very spirit's going to go over them, and they're going to come alive. They're already standing there. They're standing there lifeless, having appearance of life, but they're really dead. They look alive, but they're dead. So he says, speak over them one more time. And God says, see, I'm going to make you come from your graves. I'm going to bring you out of death, and you're going to come alive. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And this is what Jesus is referring to, and this is what Paul is referring to. Here's the idea. You and I, the Bible says, are dead in our sins. And God has made us alive according to his mercy. God says, you, you are dead bones that need to come alive. You look alive. You're, you're standing there, but you're lifeless. You need to come alive, and the Spirit of God breathes over them. And here's what I want you to see when it comes to salvation of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit loves to make dead things alive. The Holy Spirit loves to go into the areas of our life that are, de- that are dead and make them alive. I'm so thankful we serve a God who says, this is dead, you feel dead, you are dead, or this area in your life is dead, but I'm going to make it alive again. That this is not a one-time thing God does, God is constantly making us alive. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I, behold, I make all things new. It's actually written as, behold, I make all things new continually all the time. God's always making all things new. Here's what Ezekiel's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, God will go into the dead areas of your life and make them alive again. And, and church and myself, guys, this is something I've had to pray over. And there's some dead areas in my life. There's some areas in my life where I go, why do I feel numb to this? Why is my attitude this way? Why is my heart this way? Why is the relationship this way? It's broken. God wants to go into all those dead areas in our life and make them new. And I want you to hear this: the Holy Spirit wants to make you who are dead alive. The Holy Spirit, as you're a believer in Jesus, you follow Jesus. There's still those dead tendencies. God is still making all things new. Please, if you or maybe you're here and you go, I really struggle with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts and cutting and hurting myself, harming others. God wants to make that dead area of your life alive. Maybe you go, my marriage, it's just fallen apart and it feels dead. God wants to make that alive. God is so good. The Holy Spirit is so good about actually f- pinpointing and finding those dead areas and say, let me make them alive. There's a verse in Genesis 1, verse 2, it talks about how the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. It literally says he hovered over the chaos. And I love that thought of the Spirit loves to go over those chaotic areas in our life and hover over them. And there are certain areas in my life and your life where you say, I don't want to let God in. I don't want to relive that moment. I don't want to forgive that person. I'm not going to expose my heart to God right now. I don't want to let him in that. And this is where the Holy Spirit is saying, let me in. Let me make this dead thing alive again. Let me set you free from this. Let me come into your life, and you don't have to be in bondage to that person, that thought, that experience anymore. Let me make that dead thing alive. And God's so faithful to do that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, and please hear this, it says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you, who dwells in you, who dwells in you. He's saying if the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the grave, he's not going to leave you hanging. If the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the grave and he lives in you, he's going to raise you from the grave. Do we understand that the Holy Spirit loves to go to those dark and depressing and disgusting and dead areas of our life and says, let me make that new, let me in. That Jesus looked at Lazarus in the grave and says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out. That's all he says. And the Holy Spirit is saying that, Said, let me come in, come out. That weird place that you're in mentally, that depressive mindset you have right now, come out. I want to make you alive. I want to make this alive. Church, this is not just some teaching. Do you understand that? I cannot teach you about the Holy Spirit unless we're also seeking and experiencing and, and saying, God, you make dead things alive constantly. That's what you do. Make this dead thing in my life alive. Make me, maybe, who's dead in my sin alive. God wants to make you alive, amen? Hey, Christians, do you believe that God wants to make those dead areas of your life alive? Do you believe that we serve a God who rose Jesus from the grave and that same spirit dwells in you? And God's like, if I'm faithful to raise up Jesus, aren't, don't you know I'm faithful enough to raise you up? I need to not just hear this. I need to start believing this, surrender to this, and say, God, there are dead relationships, dead feelings, dead motives, dead whatever. Make those alive again. I'm so thankful we serve, uh, listen, a God who sends us the Holy Spirit, who regenerates us, who says new beginning, new Genesis, new Genesis. Genesis 1, that fell apart. (laughs) The Bible says, uh, new new Genesis. We we have new creation and you're going to be a new creation. God wants to make those areas of life new. I believe there are many people in this room right now who are dead, whether you're dead in your sin and you need to be born again, or whether there's just dead areas of your life, and the Holy Spirit is saying, come out, let me in, let us make this new. Let me restore you. Let me bring a regenesis. So let me just say this. Number first thing about salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Number two, the Holy Spirit adopts us. The Holy Spirit adopts us. Listen to this quote by Warren Rearsby. It's so good. I had to use it. He said this uh, about the Holy Spirit adopting us. He says, to put it simply, regeneration means entering the family. Adoption means enjoying the family. Regeneration is, you've been born again. I've made you new. Now, adoption is, don't just be a baby. Like, enjoy. Grow. Mature. Be adopted. Enjoy the position you have. You're adopted. You're part of the family of God. You have a new position, a new way you relate to God. The verse that we have for this about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself adopting us into the family, is Romans chapter 8, verse 15. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, here's what it says He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. What is this saying? This idea of adoption has two different terms. There's a legal term to adoption, and there's this personal intimate term of adoption. I don't know if you caught that in in these verses. Let's start with the personal intimate term, first of all. He says you've been adopted. This is personal. This is very intimate. He says, now we out, Abba, Father. We used to call God something else. (laughs) Maybe you hated God. Maybe you despised God. Maybe you're, you're just always angry at God. Why would God do this? there's something that took place as James talks about how we are once enemies, we are once enemies of God, but now we're called friends of God. We're once enemies of God, but now we call him dad. I I don't understand how I once went from something in my heart to God, how dare you, I can't believe to something of, hey dad. This idea of adoption is so personal and so intimate. And and I really do want you to hear this, understand this idea. He, He literally says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So let's just talk about this. Um, when we first had my son Micah, and you know he's a baby, and he's growing up, and he's like six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, ten months. You know, I remember, and I'm pretty sure. I talk, we dispute, but I think he said dad at first. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, he did. Now, and I do remember. We're like, say it, say it, and he's kind of like, you know, the first few times they say, it doesn't really make sense. It's like, duh. You're like, oh, I said it, and you're like, freak out as a dad. You're like, yes, he said it. That counts. And maybe he's just like gas. Like, I don't know. But it's like, you're like, yes, I don't care. It counts. But I do remember as that begins to like form and grow, and he looks at you and he goes, dad, dad daddy. And that just grows. There's something where you're like, you're just smitten as a dad, as a mom. You're just like, I, yes, anything you want. What? You know, there's something about like when he looks at you and says, dad, daddy, dad," and you go, well, yes. And you go, and there's something where I look at my son, and I go, you're mine. You're mine. Understand this when it comes to adoption. This is not just a legal thing. It's a personal thing. God is literally saying over you, you're mine. Have you had that yet? Honestly, have you had that yet? There had to be a time in my life, where Romans 8, 16, had to become very real, where has had to say to me, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit, you are a son, you're mine. Has God's spirit have you had it just and I don't I can't it's hard to put it into words. Have you had there, that time in your life where you're alone, you're in the word, you're praying, you're, you're in your car, I have no idea, but you just God's like, You're mine, you're mine, you're mine. Stop doubting. Stop having this f- spirit of fear. You fear death, you fear help, you're mine. Stop. You're mine. This idea of adoption is first intimate. It is so beautiful. You, you need to have this experience. behind. You need to have God speak over you. mind are You're completely mine. And can I also say this too, by the way, it's, yes, it's personal and it's intimate, but it's also this legal positional thing. And so I'm so thankful that it, I need, it, it's not just this wishy-washy, oh, I feel good. Like, that's good. I'm glad I feel this way. I'm so glad. But I'm also glad that it's like stamped and legal. I'm also glad that God's like, no, this is public and this is a legal thing. So let me explain this idea of adoption that Paul's even using. In Roman culture, there would be adoption of adults. There would be. People would adopt adults if you are a roman and you have a lot of money and wealth and let's say you have kids or your kids die you never have kids whatever or you don't trust your kid you could appoint an heir to take over your kingdom you could actually adopt someone into your family to have rights over everything and so there would be times where they'd have to have this private adoption and this public ceremony that's taking place for hey this servant of mine who served faithfully for years they've maybe had no rights or very limited rights they probably had no wealth they probably had no reputation. All of a sudden, in one day, they get a new inheritance, a new name, a new reputation, a new family, and it is public, and it is personal, it's private, and it's public. And it'd be celebrated amongst family and friends, and this is now my heir. And there'd be something about this legal adoption taking place with adults for taking over maybe a kingdom or taking over a whatever it might be. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you have been legally adopted. You are maybe once without a name, without an inheritance, without a good reputation, without anything, but now you have a new family, and that means you have a new identity. And there's something so profound about adoption. Maybe some of you have been adopted. My mom was adopted. I'm so thankful my mom was adopted. In 1960, my grandma went to go abort my mom. It wasn't, le- it wasn't legal in 1960. She goes and meets this doctor in this sketchy room, she, the way they describe it, and she gets fearful, and she goes, I'm not gonna, I can't do it. I don't trust, I don't, I don't, I'm so thankful she did that. She didn't give my mom up for adoption. I'm so thankful for that. There'd be no me, my brother, my sister, my son, Micah. There'd be none of that. She goes, Let me just give her up for adoption. In 1960, my grandpa Ken Wilmart adopted my mom. My mom got a new name, a new inheritance, a new family, a new identity. She got just love for just, for just being there. She didn't do anything. She was just loved. She was just given loved. And, and you have to see this. Then when the Bible says you're adopted, it's this legal thing. You have a new family. Sorry, we're kind of messed up a little bit. But you have a new family. Like, welcome. <laughs> you, you have a new name. God gives you a new name. God gives you a new status. The way it says here is that you have a new inheritance. You're co-heirs with Christ. That you have an inheritance, the Bible says, that will not fade away. All the other inheritance in this life will fade away, but you have an inheritance that will never fade away. There, there's so many advantage, advantages to being adopted. And God is saying, you are adopted into my family. You are my, not only does listen, not only does the Holy Spirit regenerate us, thank God for that. Not only does He make me new, thank God for that. But he says, and come in the family and enjoy, you're adopted. See, this idea, please hear this. Christianity cannot merely be you are forgiven. That's it. Good enough, I'm good enough with forgiven. Christianity cannot merely be that you are declared righteous. Those things are great. But can I tell you even something on top of that? Better than that, you are adopted. Not just forgiven, but you're not part of the family. You now have a new family. We gotta communicate Christianity is so much more than just forgiven. Hey, you're not gonna go to hell. Okay, great. But you get heaven. You get Jesus. You get get eternal life. You get an abundance of life now. There's so much more than just forgiveness, which I'm so thankful for forgiveness. But there's so much more. You are adopted into the family of God. Are you thankful for that this morning? That we once had the spirit of fear. We used to fear death. We used to fear people. We used to fear, and God's like, I've given you now a new name. You're a child of God you're my son, you're my daughter, you don't have to fear these things anymore, you have to fear hell anymore. You know, and can I also tell you one more thing, by the way, um, as a son and daughter of God, you know what that means? We, it also means this, we have God's active love that doesn't always feel like love, or feels painful sometimes. Like, what do you mean? It's in Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to read this, because it talks about legitimate sons versus illegitimate sons, and it uses a different word in Old King James. Uh, let me just read this verse to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Listen, he says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father, who, who has ever heard of a child who's not disciplined by its father, if God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not, are not really his children at all. Do you hear that? There was a time in my life where I remember I was getting away with sin. Like, getting away with sin, getting away with sin. And I remember this verse that like, God like, brought to my mind. I was in high school and he's like, hey, you're not getting caught for your sin. That should freak you out. <laughs> there's this verse that says, hey, if you're God's son or God's daughter, he's going to pursue you and discipline you and chastise you, correct you, bring you lovingly back to Jesus. And there's a side of it where, guys, if you are being disciplined by God, that's because you're a son or a daughter. If you're not being disciplined by God, I would have some concerns. God's like, I'm going to discipline my own. I'm going to correct my own. There's so much that entails this idea of being part of the family of God. And that also means that God, who's not going to let us get away with whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. If I just, if Micah's like, can I sit to midnight and have ice cream every night? I'm like, yeah, I'd be a terrible parent. <laughs> like, eventually at the crack, say, no, now, bed, nap, consequence. Like, we got to constantly discipline because I love him, and I don't want to grow up a spoiled brat. God's like, I love you. You're my son, my daughter. I'm going to come alongside you. Listen, not only are we regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but we are adopted by the Spirit. And now there's something our heart saying, you were once my enemy, God, but now you're my dad. I once wanted nothing to do with you, but now I just love you and can't stop talking about you. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit bringing you to Jesus, amen? Lastly is this, number three is this, the Holy Spirit seals us, seals us. You're like, what is that? The musician, see, like what is, seals us, what is seals us? Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. It says, in him, listen, we'll throw the verse up here. It says, in him, Jesus, you also trusted After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is our guarantee of redemption. Before I explain this idea of sealing, and this is so profound and we cannot miss this, let me share one thought with you guys. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's like the longest sentence in the New Testament. It really is. It's the longest sentence Paul writes in Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, Paul is saying, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all play a role in saving you. All play a role in your salvation. And it's really interesting how he put, and I'm, I'm going to make it really simple. Um, it's also way more complex than this, but it's so true. Here's how the, the Trinity is involved in our salvation. We see the Father authors our salvation, Jesus accomplishes our salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. That's what he's saying. The Father authored this, Jesus accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our life. And here's where he says, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who's our guarantee. What is this idea of seal? The word seal here, you can look it up or spend time with it. It, it, it kind of refers to a signet ring. Ever seen like a signet ring? Like a ring that has like a flat top on it. might have like a family crest or something on it or some sort of symbol on it. Uh, the idea of being sealed, God's like, I've placed my stamp on you, the stamp of God on you. I've given you my spirit. I've sealed you. It literally means ownership and a legal signature. So instead of signing things back then, they could stamp their signature, their signet ring, and they could stamp it and say, that's mine. And it'd be just as good as a legal signature. If in Ephesus in this day, they were to send, let's say a package or a crate across the sea, they'd actually seal the, up these crates and put this stamp on it and let people know, this is so-and-so's, this is so-and-so's crate. An idea was almost like, as it gets to the other side, it's gonna be taken care of, and it's still in this possess- person's possession and ownership. Here's the idea. God's saying, I have sealed you until the day of redemption. You're going to get to the other side. You're mine now. You'll be mine later. I've sealed you. It actually began to be used later to referring to an, like a ring or an engagement ring. It would be used later to signify, hey, you are my, here's a ring I put a ring, guys, girls, maybe guys, primarily probably, when you give a ring to someone and say, hey, I want you to marry me, you're saying you're mine. I, I, I want you're mine. On your wedding day, two people exchange rings, you're mine, you're mine. This idea of the sealed as God's gonna put a ring on you, you're mine. There's a stamp on you. He almost refers to it as like a down payment. As the Holy Spirit is our down payment, our guarantee of that purchased possession. That, listen, he's given us the Holy Spirit, he's not gonna abandon us or leave us. Uh, When I was in Yosemite this summer, we had to rent bikes, and when we we rented bikes, we had to give my license, right? So I give my license, I got the bikes, and we returned the bikes, and I forgot my license, of course, right? And I walk away, go, "Oh, where's my license?" And what happens is, you go, "I, this is so important. I can't just like move on. I need to go back and get it because that's my license. Like this is so valuable to me. Let me go back and get my license." God's saying, "I've given you something so valuable. I'm not just going to move on. Of course, way more valuable than a license. I'm not just going to move on." i have given you my Holy Spirit. He's a guarantee, in a sense, a down payment for redemption. So here's the idea. You've been redeemed, but he says you will be redeemed. You will be redeemed from the presence of sin. I want you to see that God has placed his mark on you. I want you to see that God has stamped his signature on you that God has signed a legal name on you saying you are completely mine. You have a guarantee. A guarantee is as good as the guaranteer, and we have a great guarantee. <laughs> we have a faithful guarantee. And he's like, I will not fail you. I will not leave you. I've, I've placed my spirit upon you. I want you to hear this until the day of redemption. Paul would revisit this thought later in 2 Corinthians 5 and talk about this day of redemption. Listen to this. Or we'll end with this. He says, for we who are in this tent, in this body, listen, we groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. He says, you will put on redemption. Our body, our body will die. It'll perish because you're not going to be unclothed. You're going to be further clothed. God is going to place you. You're going to have a new body one day in heaven. And he goes, you want to know how this, I can guarantee this. God's given you a spirit. God's redeemed you. He's going to redeem you. We have the, we have God, listen, who regenerates us, makes us brand new, who makes us dead things alive, who adopts us and says you're part of the family and who says it's sealed till the ultimate day of redemption. You're redeemed, you're being redeemed, but you will be redeemed and you have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that. Church, I want us I want to just not just hear this as good information or as like, okay, this is some good legal terms, but to know that God's spirit has sealed me and sealed you. Have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Has God placed his stamp on you in a sense? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God within you? And we sk- simply get this by believing in Jesus. We simply get this by saying, Jesus, I, I believe in you. And Jesus said to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit. Listen, I do want to do something a little bit differently, and please just don't get distracted or miss this. This is something we're Christians, I'm talking to Christians right now. Christians, I believe there are dead areas in our life where God wants to make alive. life. I believe whether it's in our, f- our families, our marriages, our friendships. I believe maybe it's our attitude towards God. We're apathetic towards God. We don't really care. God's somewhat important. I believe God wants to make those dead things alive. Maybe you do come in here and there's this high anxiety, high depression, high fear of others to the point of suicidal thoughts, to the point of cutting, to the point of hurting yourself or others, whatever, been manipulating others, abusing others, whatever it might be, God wants to make those dead things alive. And I'm gonna say the Holy Spirit is really good at making dead things alive. And God is saying, come, breathe. Let, like, God is saying, let me pour out my spirit upon you. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let, let the Holy Spirit make those dead things alive. And for non-Christians in this room, God is saying, not just there's certain things, but you are dead and I wanna make you alive. And I'm just gonna do this because this is for Christians and this is for non-Christians. I just wanna pray for those who say there are dead things in my life and I need to be made alive. And I'm, gonna make, I'm not gonna drag this out. Wherever you're standing, if you say, hey, would you pray for me? would you make this dead area of my life alive? Marriage, friendship, attitude. A lot of us have dead areas in our life. This is nothing to be ashamed for. So you would stand right now and say, would you pray over me that those dead things be alive? Just stand. I'm going to pray over you right now. We're not going to postpone this. So just stand where you're at. And I want to pray that God would make those dead things alive. Let's pray right now. Jesus, (laughs) I'm so thankful for your word that says, you know those who are yours. I'm so thankful, God, that you make those dead things in our life alive. God, by no, by no means, those who are standing right now, is there some sort of pressure or social church pressure? Jesus, those who stood to their feet and said, yes, there are dead things in my life that need to be made alive. I ask Jesus by your spirit, make those alive. God, for the marriages that are hurting, God, for their attitudes that are apathetic towards you, for those who are just dead still in their sin, they're constantly turning back to whatever sin it is that owns them. Whether it's pornography, hatred, Jesus, set them free. Make those dead areas alive, I ask right now. God, as, as you spoke over those, those bodies that were standing there lifeless, but you breathed, your spirit went in them and they were alive. I ask God that your spirit would go into all the areas of my life, of our lives, of those standing. Jesus, for those maybe who've never believed in you, For those who who say, God, I, I want you, I'm an enemy. I want nothing to do with you, but Jesus, make me alive. God, let me, my heart say, Father, God, do something that only you can do now. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you're so faithful to make dead things alive. So we turn to you now and ask you to do this by your power and by your spirit in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.